0: Moviegoers love a good reveal, whether it's Oz the Great and Powerful or Verbal Kent or Darth Vader. We relish when a character's mask comes off and their true identity is brought to light. The Mission Impossible franchise might take the character reveal too literally. In six movies, they've had 15 scenes where a character dramatically tears off a mask to show who's underneath. My favorite are the masks that somehow also change Tom Cruise's height and weight. Have you noticed that? <laughs> He'll have a mask, but it'll make him look like Philip Seymour Hoffman. They don't look the same from the <laughs> neck down, but those are those are those are some great masks. There's a dramatic unmasking, uh, shocking reveal in Genesis 38. Now the text is sorted, but the story isn't being told to scandalize us. After all, the Bible isn't a tabloid. So why has God included this embarrassing episode for us to study? As we've seen already many times in this book, uh, the Lord doesn't shy away from telling us the truth even when it's ugly, even when it's about His chosen people. Uh, But the text isn't just about uncovering sin. It's about revealing God's grace and His irrepressible accomplishing of good, even when man is doing all the wrong that he can. Uh, So let's take a look at these reveals, starting in verse 1. "'At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adelamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife.' And slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son. He named him Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son, named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. So the year is around nineteen hundred BC, and our text tonight is going to cover a little more than twenty years, but a, a pretty good spread. Uh, And it starts, as we're told in verse 1, right after Joseph is sold into slavery, which we saw last time. So, while Genesis 38 is playing out, at the same time… Joseph is serving in Potiphar's house and then spending his years in jail and then finally ascending to his place of leadership in the government of Egypt. Moses, our author, sort of wants wants us to keep Joseph's story in the back of our minds while we're reading this text. We can contrast the, the struggles of the godly, self-controlled son with the scandals of the ungodly, selfish son. Uh, and they're sort of juxtaposed, Judah and Joseph. Now, Judah is making very consequential decisions in these verses. First of all, he leaves his brothers. And settles in a Canaanite community. This is exactly what Lot did before him, and Esau did before him, and they did it to their own ruin. We've studied uh, through that in those earlier passages, and this is exactly what Judah is doing. He's cutting away from his family, cutting away from the, the the covenant of God, and going to live with the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman. This is a purposeful choice to operate outside of the covenant. Uh, He's completely walked away from the plan of God, the boundaries of God, the tradition of his family. He's going out on his own. And at this point, Judah as a man has no significant spiritual belief or morality to speak of. After all, it was his idea to sell his own brother into slavery, to traffic him, for a few ounces of silver, uh, and somehow this guy gets worse from there, right? And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. Uh, But that's who Judah is at this point. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. No great love story for Tamar. Uh, This Canaanite girl is going to be treated absolutely terribly by this family and from start to finish of this, of this passage, it's as if she is completely on her own, that she has no friends, no help, no one watching out for her. Notice, as we read, her isolation, her loneliness, her being left to her own devices. Verse 7, now Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. All I have to say is that Ur's evil must have been remarkable. Uh, consider the, fact of the, of the facts of what we already have seen in the book of Genesis. Consider the fact that God did not put Cain to death. He did not put Lamech to death. He did not put Ham, the wicked son of Noah, to death. Uh, And if you're familiar with this passage, or you will be after this chapter, he doesn't even put Judah to death for all the things that he's done, and he's selling his own brother into slavery. So man, what did Ur do? What kind of a man was Ur? We don't know, but he wasn't good. Now, this is the first time in the Bible where God executes an individual for their sin. There were wider judgments, of course, like the flood. That was a global judgment as a result of man's sin. And there was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain. That was also a judgment on sin. But this is the first individual judgment that God looked down on a life and made the determination that you're done. I'm going to kill you because of your sin. It was the first time that happened, but it wouldn't be the last. In fact, even into the New Testament, we see God at times bringing terrible, terminal judgment on specific people, specific unbelievers, like Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. The people uh, were trying to suck up to Herod Agrippa, and they were saying, the voice of a god and not of a man, the voice of a god and not of a man. And he was like, yeah, I kind of am like a god. And the Lord said, that's enough. And an angel struck him, and he's eaten by worms, and he dies. There's, I think, a great Donut Man song about that. Uh, All you young worship leaders, if you could work on an Acts 12 worship song, that'd be great. Also, it wasn't just unbelievers that we see the Lord bringing terminal judgment on for their sin. In fact, we see more often God doing it to believers in the New Testament. Uh, Believers, Christians like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, um, who played the hypocrites, lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to the church, And they were struck dead for that sin right then and there. Also, some of the believers in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, listen, because of some of your sin, some of you are sick and some of you have have fallen asleep, meaning have died because of your sin. So God, we find, reserves this right to look down on a life and say, I'm calling it right here. And I'm going to execute this person based on their sin. He reserves this right. And it reminds us that we are to take sin very seriously because God takes us seriously. Now, we're all about the grace of God and the incredible mercy of God. His mercies are new every morning. And yet, by the grace of God, go we into all of these sins? Yes. But we agree with Paul, should we sin, that grace might abound. Of course not. God forbid. And though God is a God of love and grace and mercy and unfailing kindness, he also is very serious about sin, and he sometimes makes very serious determinations uh, for reasons that he doesn't always reveal to us. And so he takes it seriously. We also need to take it seriously. Verse 8, "'Judah said to Onan, "'Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother.'" But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. When you study the law of Moses in the Old Testament, you encounter what is referred to as leveret marriage. Levirate marriage, and that's where a man provides children for his deceased brother. Uh, it's not referring to Levites. It's not referring to Leviticus or the Levitical law. The word leveret comes from the, the Latin word for brother-in-law. So it's simply a word that means brother-in-law marriage. Now, this custom uh, is super gross to us and super outside of our culture and our boundaries. Let's just get that out of the way got it Now, this custom is also most famous in the Hebrew tradition. That's how we know about it from the study of the Old Testament. It was a big deal in Israel during the Old Testament. This was something that was serious and uh, a a real consideration that they would operate in. You see a a version of it playing out in the book of Ruth uh, very profoundly. It's most famous among the Hebrews, but it was also part of the law for the Assyrians, the Hittites. And other Canaanite cultures. Now, like I said, we are grossed out by this idea. It is way outside what we find normal or acceptable or or historical, right? We're, we're it's way out there for us. But we have to understand that things were very, very different thousands of years ago. And in these tribal communities, there was a very important goal that no family line go extinct. And that was an important goal for God, for His people Israel, that no family line go extinct and be wiped out of the record. On top of that, something that we have a hard time understanding or putting ourselves in the shoes of, is the really uh, significant social welfare aspect that needed to be considered. In these eras, in these cultures, a woman could not just go out and get a job. A woman could not just store up money in a bank account. A woman did not have the ability to um, get checks sent to her from, from anywhere, right? We just, they couldn't do it. That's not how society and culture was arranged. A woman was protected and provided for by her father until she was married. And then what happened? There was an arrangement, there was a contract, there was a bride price, there was a dowry, there was a transaction, and sometimes we look back and it's like, hey, it's kind of like the lady's being treated like a piece of property, and in many cultures she was in a negative sense, but even in the more godly Hebrew culture, it was more about who's going to take care of this individual, someone has to take care of her. So when we read there that Judah goes and he gets this wife for his son, it's a transaction she is being transferred from the responsibility and the authority of her father into the household of Judah. A bride price is paid. And so, she is now the responsibility and under the authority of this new family. So, before a woman was married, her father would protect her and provide for her, After she was married, she would be safeguarded by her husband. If her husband died, the idea was she would be looked after by her children. In these times, it was typical that the woman would die first, often in childbirth, right? Husbands would often outlive two or three wives. That was even the case leading into, like, the time of Benjamin Franklin. It was common for people all the way up to that point that the men would outlive two wives, right? Because life was so much more difficult, we didn't have modern medicine, and often ladies would die in childbirth. And so, The idea was, okay, once the husband dies, well, you have kids, they will take care of you. It was a real problem, not just socially, not just culturally, but economically, to be a widow with no kids. It puts you in a strange, social, no-woman's land, right? Where there's no one to protect you, no one to provide for you, and that's a real problem. Onan, this brother-in-law, shows appalling. "'Selfishness and cruelty. "'He was happy to use Tamar for his own gratification, "'but repeatedly refused to help her have children, "'and so he is sentencing her to total bankruptcy "'for the rest of her life. "'As things stood,' onan would get a double portion of the inheritance from his father his older brother would have now he's dead which means that all falls to onan but if onan provides a son to his dead older brother ur then that baby boy would now become the inheritor of his father's double portion so onan is not economically incentivized to do this But he should be a decent, moral human being who doesn't say, I want you to starve so I can get more money. But that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, And so, so this is truly appalling, cruel behavior on the part of Onan, way outside of what any kind of decent human being would do. The Lord sees this wickedness, and he responds swiftly and justly. Now, we know, let's just pause for a second and realize who we're talking about. We are talking about Judah, uh, you know, the grandson of, 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 of Isaac, great-grandson of Abraham, son of Jacob. We know that Judah and his people are going to be the major focus of the rest of the Old Testament, Right? Do you know anything about the tribe of Issachar? Do you know anything about, you know, characters of Naphtali? No, you don't. We know a lot more about the people of Judah. He's a major part of the Old Testament. We know great things are going to happen through the line of Judah. We're excited about that. But let's just pause at this point and say, here's what's going on with Judah and his family. Here's who they were. Uh, just because God was going to do great things through the line of Judah did not mean that these men, His sons, had free reign to disobey God, dishonor God, and act in dishonorable, disgraceful ways, right? God did not have to use these wicked sons. He would raise up others. And that's always the case, right? It's the message that was given to Esther. Hey, the Lord wants to use you for great things, but if you won't, then God will raise up someone else. It's the same thing that Jesus said to the Jews in his time. He said, if, if these people don't praise me, God will raise up rocks to praise me if, if they have to. And so, God wants to use us, but if we refuse to obey, if we refuse to go His way, if we're just going to walk in dishonorable ways, disobedient ways, He can say, okay, then I will set you aside because I don't have to use you. I want to use those who are willing to obey me and love me and honor me and give their hearts to me. Uh, And so, he did not have to use these guys. He, would, he could and would raise up others. So the question is, how would Judah respond as the pressure increased in the family? Verse 11, Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Judah responds with a selfish, dishonorable solution. First of all, he assumes that it's Tamar's fault. She's some kind of black widow. She's the reason why my two sons are dead, and if I have Sheila go over to her, he'll die too. Second, he lies outright. We're told he has no intention of making good on this promise. And third, perhaps worst of all, he expels Tamar from his home. Now, she belonged to his household. He had agreed to bring her into the family. The bride price had been paid. She had been transferred as a member of her father's house to a member of his house, and he's throwing her out, refusing to give her any protection, any provision, and he says, just go live as a widow somewhere else, and maybe someday we'll work it out. She does not belong in her father's house. He's doing a really bad thing here. There's another layer to his disgraceful behavior here. Judah has decided to throw in with the Canaanites, right? He's made the choice to leave his family and say, I live with the Canaanites now. He lives with them. He marries with them. He does business with them. He's friends with them. It's interesting to discover that in the Hittite and Assyrian laws, Levirate customs and leveret laws extended not just to the brothers-in-law, but to the father-in-law as well, meaning that in the culture he had willfully assimilated into, it was now legally his duty to bear a child with Tamar. Now, obviously, we in the 21st century as New Testament Christians, we come at this from a very different perspective. But according to the choices that Judah has made, the life that he's carved out for himself, it was his responsibility legally and culturally and morally to either provide his son to to give an heir to Tamar or for him himself to give a son to Tamar. There was no law of Moses yet, they're not under the Mosaic law. He had said to his son, Do your duty, right? Do your duty you better do this. But now he is not only unwilling to do his duty under the Canaanite system that he wants to be a part of, he won't even offer his third son to do what he should do. He won't even offer her provision and protection as the father-in-law who should be looking out for her. Verse 12 says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. We live in such a different day and age, it's hard for us to understand the plight Tamar was facing. She has no future. She has no hope. She's left in bankrupt isolation as a widow forever. Meanwhile, Judah a man of wealth, a man of freedom, a man of position, a man of authority. He gets to mourn for a little while, right? But then he gets to just be done with mourning. She's just living as a widow forever, right? As far as he's concerned, with no hope, no way out, no end in sight to the the black tunnel that she's in, while he's like, well, I mourned for a while, and now I'm back to my regular life, and I get to go to Timnah to sheep shearing. And that wasn't just actual shearing of the sheep. It was a time of partying and celebration. It was like a big deal. He'd be going there to make money and carry on his life and carouse around, and that's exactly what he's going to do. So we need to see this incredible contrast before the, between the plight of Tamar and, and just the sort of arrogant selfishness of Judah. Verse 13, Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Ename, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So there's a lot of commentary debate over this mask, this veil that she wore. Was it the universal bandana of harlots or what? You know, uh, there's just a lot of weird archaeological discussion about it. But the point is not about, you know, the point is that Judah didn't recognize Tamar. He didn't know it was her. The fact that she was hanging out by the road where she was was the greater signal that she was a person in in search of a John than anything else. Now, Tamar is making a very specific, very calculated decision here. We don't know a lot about her, but we do know that she had spent years waiting for the right thing to happen. She didn't return to her Canaanite people to find a husband. She was like Ruth in that sense. She seemed to believe that she belonged in this family and that it was her right to have a son and that right was being wrongly denied her by her father-in-law. It is also interesting to note this piece of historical trivia. In this era, the veil was the garment of a betrothed woman. Think about Rebecca, right? When she showed up and she saw Isaac in the the distance, she said to the servant, who is that? He said, that is my master who you're betrothed to. She immediately puts the veil on, signaling that I'm the one you're betrothed to. So, In fact, scholars point out that there was an ancient Assyrian law, not at the exact time, but there was an ancient Assyrian law that forbid any unmarried woman from wearing a veil. And so that may or may not have been in effect. It's just interesting. Either way, her disguise here should have signaled to Judah that she was a betrothed woman, betrothed to another man, and he had no business hitting on her, trying to pick her up. Isn't it sad that Tamar could absolutely count on Judah visiting a harlot. As soon as she heard he was going, going to Timnah, it was like 20 miles away, far enough for her to spring this trap on him and make it work. What, what was the first thing she thought? She thought, oh, I know what he'll do. He'll visit a prostitute. Why don't I just make myself look like a prostitute and solve the problem that I'm in? The question is asked, why didn't she set the trap for Sheila? We're left to speculate. We don't know. The simple answer may simply be that she knew Judah would take the bait, and maybe maybe Sheila wouldn't. Verse 16, he went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. She said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. She gave them to, uh, he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left and removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. So Judah immediately solicits her in a coarse and vulgar way, according to Hebrew scholars. His offer of a youngling from his flock is ironic. She needed a kid, but not of the goat variety. Not only did Tamar assume that he would take the bait, she also assumed he would lie about it later. And so she got this collateral from him. She knew she would need it. She asked for these items. The signet ring was probably a little cylinder that was carved in a particular way that they would use to press into clay or to put into like agreements, official contracts, like a personal notary. The staff that he carried was also usually personalized. He should not be giving these things up. One scholar noted that this was like giving up your driver's license and credit cards. Uh, So, not good things to be giving up. But Judah has nothing but self on the mind. He's unwilling to wait for his sin, even when he's in the place where all his flocks are. Remember that. Why did he go to this place? Because that's where my flocks are, and I have to shear my sheep. What does he say he'll give her? I'll give you a little young one from my flock. It would not have taken much time at all, I don't think, for him to procure one of those little goats and bring it back here. But He was unwilling to wait. His sinful heart was rushing him toward ruin because that's what sin does. It leads us into the trap. It leads us into the pit. It leads us into ruin. That's what the enemy wants to do. That's what our sinful flesh wants to do. Ruin us, destroy us, bring us down. Verse 20 says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. Besides, the men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute here. So Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. So Judah takes his payout to a prostitute more seriously than the welfare of his own daughter-in-law. He's completely ignoring her, completely um, neglecting her, completely uh, cheating her, but like worrying himself about how, well, you better make sure that, you know, I pay off this harlot. Beyond that, we see the corruption of his thoughts. Oh man, what will the lads think? I don't want them to laugh at me. What about what the Lord thinks, man? God was actively judging this family. And Judah was blind to it, right? God is killing your sons because of how wicked they are. And you're like, well, I don't want the guys to think I'm, you know, not cool. He's blind to his son's sins. He doesn't think twice about his own sins. He says, I don't want to become a laughingstock. Your version may say, lest we be shamed, right? the word there is someone who is worthless, foolish, and disreputable. He's like, I don't want people to think I'm worthless, foolish, or disreputable. Spiritually speaking, he's all of those things, but he doesn't care at all. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. So Judah is told, Tamar's been acting like a prostitute, and his reaction is, well, we can't have that. You know, she's betrothed to my son after all, and so we better kill this girl. His hypocrisy is stunning. He immediately sentences her to death, And we're going to see in the next verse, everybody just goes along with it as if that he had the right to do it. It reveals that she did still, as far as everyone was concerned, including Judah, she still fell under his authority. He had the authority and the ability to sentence her to death. No one batted an eye at that because it's like, oh yeah, she is yours to do with as you please. Meanwhile, he has thrown her out of his house. He's not paying for her food. He's not helping her with any protection. He's withholding all the things he's supposed to give her, and now he's like, well, but now it's my responsibility to kill this girl. Let's get her killed. Incredible. He had spent years neglecting her and cheating her and refusing to show her basic decency. Now he hears a rumor secondhand, by the way, He hears a rumor hearsay that she's done something she shouldn't, and he quickly calls for her execution. He wants to get rid of Tamar, and this seems like a very convenient solution. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet, ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her intimately again. Judah is exposed for all he has done. The staves of that era sometimes even had the name of their owner inscribed on them. I like to imagine that it said, (laughs) Judah, on there. It might have... What a scene this must have been among the community. In this climactic moment, the masks come off, both Tamar and Judah. All is laid bare before God and everyone. To his credit, Judah repents. He acknowledges and confesses his sin, and he does what is right from that point forward. It is a turning point for Judah, the son of Jacob. In fact, the next time we see him, he's back with his brothers. He's acting like a servant leader. He speaks truthfully and living sacrificially. Thanks to his intervention, he convinces Jacob to let them go down to Egypt so that they will live and not die. So there's a dramatic turnaround, and this is the moment where it begins. Was Tamar right in what she did? It seems like Judah is saying that she was. What are we to make of that? Now, Judah doesn't necessarily speak for God, at least at this point, to be sure. But it is interesting, looking forward through the Old Testament, we see that God did bless Tamar's efforts here. Through this pregnancy, not only does she become pregnant, but she becomes pregnant with twins. And through this pregnancy comes David and Christ Jesus himself. She's name-checked in the genealogies of Matthew. In the book of Ruth, Tamar is praised. The people who are so excited for Ruth and the fact that she's in this leverett marriage situation, at least that one's based upon love and redemption and all of that, unlike Tamar… But in that scene, this is what the people say to Ruth. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, who she bore to Judah. Really? That's like the the best congratulations you can give her? Listen, it's a tough ethical dilemma when we look at like all the Bible comments about this situation. Obviously, the whole thing is very icky to us. um, We live in a very different time, a very different culture, and more importantly, we have a lot more revelation from God, particularly when it comes to personal conduct. None of these people had the Bible. None of them had the law of Moses. None of them had the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. None of them had any of this, right? They were operating with way less material than we were. So it's a very strange situation. And so end of the day, was she right We shouldn't do what she did, right? Uh, But that doesn't mean that she was doing something purely evil. She's not doing what Lot's daughters did. Lot's daughters were being weird and ignorant and said, well, there's no men left in the entire world. That's not true. That's stupid. You're dumb. You were just in a town, not Sodom. They went to that other smaller town. They lived there among people for a while. Then Lot got freaked out and said, we live in a cave now. And they said, well, I guess everybody. So they're doing this whole weird, perverse, uh, strange thing. That's not what Tamar's doing here. Now, Tamar could have found herself a Canaanite husband, and Judah would have been fine with that. Instead, she risked her life because she seemed to believe that she had a place in this Hebrew family. Her scheme wasn't done out of irrational ignorance like Lot's daughters. What she did was within the legal and cultural boundaries that she grew up in. But her act was one of deception, and once the law of Moses was established, it would have been an unacceptable arrangement. And so it's a very strange ethical dilemma. Judah is correct that the real fault was his. His sin drove Tamar to a place of desperation, and the scene not only helped him recognize his own sin, but then to remember his part in in, in the plan of God, his place in the plan of God. We don't get all of the particulars, but after this, he realizes, I need to be back with my brothers, and he packs up and he goes back to them. Verse 27 when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back and out came his brother. These poor ladies in Genesis, man alive. And she said, what a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand came out and was named Zerah. So, once again, we have an instance in Genesis where the younger son is chosen over the older. God would use the line of Perez to bring the kings and the Redeemer, not the firstborn zero. So, as we close, we learn a lot about the grace of… This is a gross story, right? It's one of those chapters that people… You know, I get to it, I'm like, oh, man, I guess I have to teach through Genesis 38 like on Wednesday night. Will anybody notice if we just skip over it? Right? But the truth is, when we think about it, we learn a lot about the grace of God in this uncomfortable story. Let's think about it. First, it shows us that God is not uh, afraid or unaware of our sin. Those are two very important things to consider. We live in a culture where people are constantly being canceled and then abandoned by all of their friends and all of their community because something comes to light that they did like 15 years ago, right? That they, they, be, they become blacklisted, nobody talks to them, they lose all their jobs, all that kind of stuff. God doesn't do that when your sin is discovered. He still loves you, He's not afraid to associate with you. Thank goodness. Judah and his tribe would become the major players in the rest of the Old Testament. But God doesn't paper over his sin either. It's on display in all its shocking awfulness. Of course, God is not cavalier about that sin. The story is about the Lord exposing sin and bringing Judah to repentance and turning him back from the destruction of his sin. But the Lord's love for Judah and for us is constant, even though we are wretched sinners who do not deserve his love. God is not afraid to associate with you. He comes down from heaven to earth to save us, even though we are dead in trespasses and sins. In addition to that love, Judah's story shows us how God can redeem and transform really, really wicked people. What a good story this is. Judah was a despicable person in chapters 37 and 38, one of the worst characters in the book of Genesis. He's a human trafficker. He's visiting prostitutes. He's cheating his own family. He's a liar. He's all of these different things. He's, he's condemning a woman to be burned alive until she dies without even asking if the story about her was true. That's who he is. And by chapter 44, he's a hero. He's saving lives. He's been transformed. And there's a lovely moment of sort of poetic restoration in chapter 49. You see, in this section, by his sin, Judah had lost his staff, right? It's this personal thing, this staff. It's like a scepter. It's taken away from him. He lost it because of his sin. And in chapter 49, as Jacob is giving the heavenly blessing to his sons, God gives the staff back to Judah. And he says, the scepter, the staff is never going to depart from your family forever. God's restoration of our lives is everlasting, and he attends to even the smallest details. We're also reminded of how God helps the helpless. Tamar, she reminds us of Hagar, right? That's why they rhyme. Not really, but Tamar finds herself in this desperate situation, no way out, no hope, As you read the text, where are her friends? Where are her family? Where's anyone who will help her, who will stand up for her, who will be with her? No one will help her. No one will will watch over her. She's, She's treated so badly. No one's trying to shield her, but God was there. He was the one treating her kindly, treating her generously, looking out for her future. She was robbed of sons twice, once from Ur, once from Onan, and so he gave her twins, right? She had nothing to do with his family of faith, but he brought her in to be a part of it anyway. God's grace for Tamar, this outsider Canaanite, reminds us of how he has grafted us into his family. Tamar had been bought by the father, for the son, and therefore she had the right to bear a child in this family. God agreed with all of that. And it reminds us in a devotional way how by God's grace, he has given, he has blood bought us, brought us into his family, and it says he has given those who believe the right to become children of God. And unlike Judah, God our Father will not withhold any provision or protection from us. He has brought us in, he has made us his own, His grace is unfailing and unstoppable and unmatched. Even when the worst is happening on the earth, God's best is being accomplished by His power and His love and His grace for you and for me and for the rest of this world.